Amy, when our guest for today's mini, Elena Dillon, was on the operating table about to birth her first child, she wailed, why didn't anyone warn me? Her medical practitioner responded with, if you knew, you never would have gotten pregnant. (laughs) That reminds me of when I was pregnant with my first child. I remember asking my mom, how do brothers and sisters even exist? Why would anybody do this twice? (laughs) Yeah, I was like in the throes of morning sickness, I think. And of course I did go through it all again, but yeah, pregnancy and childbirth is sort of like this veiled mystery that you don't really find all the details about until you go through it. And then when it happens, it's a total shock to the system. I think there's this assumption that we can't handle the actual truth, which is kind of mind boggling given what we end up having to handle both as women and as mothers, if we choose to become a mother, you know, there's the harassment we face out in the world, the gender inequality, all the physical stuff that comes along with having female body parts. And then there's the emotional and physical stamina it takes to give birth, to breastfeed, to maintain a healthy, let alone happy family. I could go on and on, but bottom line, we're probably a lot tougher than we and the medical establishment give us credit for. I think that's true, Amy, for sure. And speaking of a happy home, there's still this idea that all women have a built-in maternal instinct. They're the ones that should sacrifice everything from their career to their own mental health, all for the greater health and well-being of the children and the family unit. Okay, so I'm excited to talk about some of this in more detail today. Let's do it. First, let's welcome our guest. Elena Dillon is the author of the novels The Happiest Girl in the World and Mercy House. Mercy House is a library journal best book of 2020 that has been optioned by Amy Schumer. And she also wrote the pregnancy memoir, My Body is a Big Fat Temple. Elena's essays have appeared in publications, including The Rumpus, Slice Magazine, Lit Hub, Bustle, and River Teeth. Elena's new novel, Eyes Turned Skyward, is out this month from HarperCollins. Congratulations, Elena, and welcome to the show. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. Listeners, the story I mentioned earlier about Elena giving birth is from her memoir, My Body is a Big Fat Temple. Elena, in it, you have a chapter on the husband stitch. Um, And some of our listeners might not know what it is. Do you want to tell us a little bit about it? Yes, I had only heard about it after I read a short story that came out about 10 years ago called The Husband Stitch by Carmen Maria Machado. Um, And after I read that, I went to Google and looked it up. And um, then when I was writing this memoir and doing a bunch of medical research on the women's body, I returned to that research. And it's not a myth the way that a lot of people think. There's medical articles about it. What it is, is um, medical malpractice in which an OB goes beyond a vaginal tear to narrow um, the opening, the vaginal opening, in the hopes that it would provide more pleasure in the future when the woman has sex with a man. Um, More pleasure for the husband. More pleasure for the husband. Just to be clear. Yeah. No, thank you for clarifying because <laughs> yeah. it actually causes a lot of pain for the woman to endure. In addition to all of the pain that she's already suffering in the postpartum period, this adds an extra layer of discomfort. Um, and it's often kind of given as like a wink, wink in the operating room when they're closing it up. Sometimes the doctor will mention it to the man as like a, there you go, buddy kind of line. Um, And in fact, my dad said that in their childbirth class, um, that the woman told him to request it when they're in the room to say, like, can you add a husband stitch when they're closing up my mom? 
So it's a legitimate thing. Um, and there have been accounts of women who have been ignored by their doctors and haven't been believed, as is so often the case with female patients, um, until they finally find somebody who acknowledges that, yes, something terrible had been done to them. Oh, God. And just the name alone is so offensive. So icky and gross. Yeah, yes. it seems like something that would be in The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, you know, not real life, but yeah, unfortunately. And I don't think I had heard of this either. Um, I'd heard of it, but I can't remember how I first found out about it. But it stayed with me after I after I did hear about <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, it's hard to forget. Unforgettable. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And on that disturbing note, <laughs> let's turn our attention now to your new novel, Eyes Turn Skyward, which also focuses on some of the things women have left unspoken. There are two interwoven stories in your novel. First, we have Kathy, an empty nester who is returning to work as a medical assistant in a male gynecologist's office after two decades spent raising her children. But at the same time, she's taking care of her aging mother, Peggy, and she accidentally begins discovering some things about her mother's history that shock her. Every other chapter goes back in time to tell the story of Peggy's having been a WASP, a women's Air Force service pilot during World War II. Right. And as Kathy uncovers more of Peggy's story, she starts seeing how her mother's untreated depression and PTSD, and even just her inability to have her own hopes and dreams, ends up impacting their entire family. Kathy, as she learns about this stuff, starts also learning to have more compassion for Peggy. And I also felt, Elena, like it gave me even more compassion for my own mom. Um, why were Kathy and Peggy's stories important ones for you to tell? So I started writing this book 10 years ago today, and I only know that because there was a Facebook memory that popped up today that I was not expecting this morning um, that said it just, you know, just started a book today. Um, and it was this book. Oh, that's um, cool. <laughs> isn't that funny? Um it started as simply a story of Peggy during the 40s joining the Women Air Force Service Pilots and what that journey was like for her. And during the revision process, I kept getting drawn to this idea of what must happen to the women after because, um, you know, they, they flew military aircraft for the first time and they, they rose to the task, right? No one thought that women could do it and they showed themselves worthy. And then as soon as the men returned, they were no longer needed. So they were kind of discarded and sent back to the homes. They kind of had been given the impression that they might be folded into the Air Force afterwards and given military benefits and a possible military career. And so it was a particularly heartbreaking experience when that was not passed. So it occurred to me for Peggy, my character, who's this like ambitious, you know, brave woman who wants so much more than her small town life will provide. What would it have been like for her when she had the taste of adventure and something important and then was sent back um, and how like she must have felt so understimulated and isolated and all of these opportunities just ripped away and then how might she have imposed those disappointments onto her own children and specifically her daughter? So it was that kind of dynamic then that introduced this new timeline. And I was like more drawn to that mother-daughter interplay. Right. And so back to um, Peggy, when she goes through this amazing experience, she's so excited with this life she has, but then she has to give it up. Um, she has an understanding enough husband, I think, maybe given the time, but she doesn't have any professional help, I don't think. And I had read recently the 2021 book, Unwell Women, Misdiagnosis and Myth in a Man-Made World. It's by Eleanor Cleghorn. And the author has a chapter on Mother's Little Helper. 
It's about the anxiety meds mothers were encouraged to take in the 1950s to alleviate what's called domesticity disturbing tensions and, quote, enjoy life. Um, she describes an ad by a pill company that shows a woman imprisoned by mop and broom handles. It has a tagline, you can't set her free, but you can make her feel less anxious, which is like, whoa, oh my God. So um, in thinking about that and then thinking about Peggy, it almost seems like maybe professional help might have even made things worse for her. I don't know. Um, but Elena, why did you choose to have Peggy kind of quietly endure her feelings rather than working through it with anyone? Yeah, there is. It, it like it's fascinating and horrifying this history of repressing women's feelings and reactions to things. Um, and I think her husband was so understanding because he had um, lived the WASP experience alongside of her as her commanding officer. So he knew exactly what it was that she was capable of and what it was that she wasn't allowed to do. Um, but she did resort to a lot of cocktails like so many did in those decades. So along with Mother's Little Helper, there was like the cocktail hour, which was, you know, self-medication. And that was for both genders. Switching over to the daughter, Kathy's story, we see her take this job at a gynecologist office and the doctor, a man, he has a somewhat inappropriate bedside manner that's pretty cringy, right? Yes. Especially these days. Yes, for sure. <laughs> yeah, post Me Too, yeah. <laughs> and Kathy kind of has to come to terms with, do I just say nothing? What do I do? You know, it's kind of borderline, his behavior, but she just, she has a sense of being ill at ease there. Yeah, so it's interesting that you said post Me Too, because the contemporary timeline takes place in 2010, and that was 12 years ago, and so much has happened in that time. But it had to take place in 2010 because that was when the WASP were finally given their medal of recognition. So it, the plot kind of leads up to that point. Um, but yeah, I wanted to, sh with this kind of misogynistic gynecologist, um, I wanted to explore the ways in which misogyny has evolved since the 1940s without disappearing. So just like the different ways that it manifests. And of course, in a gynecologist office, there would have been opportunity to like make it a much more severe um, in fact, my gynecologist growing up was caught, um, this is terrible, he was uh, caught artificially inseminating his patients with his own sperm. You're OBGYN? Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, I've read about that, but- Did this make the news? Is this one of those- It, it did make the news. Um, they settled out of court and he still practiced because they settled. And so he kept his license um, and, and still practiced. How is he not in jail? What? He just paid them a lot of money and they didn't press criminal charges. Oh my God. Um, yeah, wow. So anyway, there were darker routes that we could have gone. But my previous novel, um, The Happiest Girl in the World, followed a gymnast as she trained for the Olympics and it had to do with kind of like the Larry Nasser topics. So like I had already explored that level of assault in medicine before. And this one I wanted to just kind of look at that borderline area. Yes. Too. Yeah, um, where you're like, do I do something? Do I not do something? Especially right. like you said, at the time that it was before there was so much Me Too discussion, there would have been a little bit more like, I don't know what to do about Indecision, this. right. Like what is inappropriate? Exactly. What should I tolerate as yeah, a Yeah, and what do I do? Right, like the boys will be boys type of mentality, like that 
even like Trump got elected through. So yeah, in this case, the doctor is well-meaning because even men don't understand how their behavior can be harmful because they haven't been taught and they have some poor role models or, you know, so they can be well-meaning and still make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, so this doctor, you know, would kind of make inappropriate jokes or call his nurses, uh, his girls in a way that he thought was like supportive and like a family environment but that of course diminished them as employees. Or he would make jokes about his female patient's weight or their STDs or things like that. So yeah, it was kind of just exploring the stuff that can make women feel small and uncomfortable without being blatantly wrong or a crime. All right. So since we're kind of on this overarching topic of women and health and mothers, um, I wanted to touch a little bit on, you know, some of the history because I have been reading a few biographies of our upcoming lost ladies that we are going to be featuring in future episodes. And stories kept coming up in terms of the sort of maternity care that women would have been receiving around the turn of the 20th century. So this was a time period when the medical field was quick to blame women's reproductive organs for every sort of malady that might be on display, including psychological, you know, our temper. If somebody was angry, even they were considered hysterical, a word that has its roots from the Latin for uterus, you know, everything had to do with our wombs or our sexual appetites or what have you. But then conversely, when it came to the one thing that women really needed serious medical attention for having babies, The medical field was just kind of like, eh, good luck with that. You know, you might die. There's not too much we can do about it. So good luck. (laughs) Godspeed. Yeah, I think, Amy, you mentioned to me that about one in every 200 women died in childbirth around that time. Is that right? That's almost like a small estimate, I think. But if you had a one in 200 chance of dying, women in this time period, when it was close to their due date, they would start to think about having their affairs in order a little. And even if they had the baby and it was a success in the days following, they could be stricken by something called puerperal fever, which took a lot of new mothers' lives. But getting back to what you said in the introduction, Kim, there was this sense that women were just better off not knowing what they were going to be facing or what could go wrong. So they had very little idea of what was going on with their bodies while they were pregnant, what they could expect during childbirth, other than knowing that there was a good chance they could die. They did know that because they saw it all around them. So it wasn't until 1886 that a woman named Dr. Alice B. Stockham wrote an illustrated manual for women about childbirth so that they could understand what all they could expect. It was called Tocology, a Book for Every Woman. And Tocology is the study of childbirth, I guess. So this was kind of your first version of what to expect when you're expecting. Imagine how enlightening that would have been for women to just see diagrams and things like that. Um, But Stockham believed that childbirth-related deaths could be reduced if women were simply educated about how it all worked. And then side note, she also kind of wrote a little kooky sex book that reminded me of Ida B. Craddock, one of our earlier Lost Ladies. But uh, that's a story we could maybe get into for another episode. Yeah, the the history of, of childbirth care is like so fascinating. The fact that male doctors 
centuries ago wouldn't even deal with childbirth because they found female body parts dirty and didn't want to deal with them. And so it was all midwives and female healers until male doctors realized that it was just good business to move into that area of practice. And then they had to kind of push midwives out of the market so that they could deal with their patients. Um, And so they did that by calling them witches and making them seem like they're superstitious and evil and executing many of them, um, even though they were the ones who had for generations studied the female body and treating with herbal remedies and dispersed medicines and things. Um, And like the puerile fever that you mentioned happened because the men were trying to be so efficient. And so they'd like do delivery, 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 going from woman to woman without washing their hands in between. Um, And so ended up killing so many of them that way. Or they would, you know, just do practices that were easy for them, like using forceps for every single delivery, which made the recovery for women so much more difficult and disfigured a lot of fetuses, babies. So yeah, all of this knowledge and stuff, though, um, that like the midwives had was lost. And then yeah, as far as transparency goes, I think like we're starting to get that knowledge on our side, as women are kind of demanding to know the reason for things, you know, like, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Emily Oster's work, but I have Mm -hmm. so illuminating. Absolutely. I leaned on her so heavily during my pregnancy to kind of understand why rules are and how important they are then. You know, like you hear these overarching things like don't drink alcohol or coffee or eat sushi or all of these things, and you just kind of take them as gospel. And then when you kind of hear how these things came to be and how like misleading some of the fear mongering is, um, you get to like make your own decisions better equipped. Um, Yeah. She deserves like a Nobel prize or something. I mean, even my most forward thinking female doctors are still passing along some of that misinformation that they were given, you know, over so many years. And going back to Amy, what you were saying too, about the women not knowing what was going to happen to them. A lot of them didn't know what was going to happen on their wedding night. But to also think about not knowing what's going to happen when you're going to give birth, the added fear. I mean, that's intense. (laughs) I had a C-section and I remember emailing somebody that had just had one. And the most comforting thing was that she wrote me this very, very long step-by-step every single thing you're going to encounter. This is what you're going to do. They're going to give you these weird underpants, you know, everything from when I check in to checking out of the hospital, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this hesitancy to give information to women is so demeaning and underestimates what women are capable of. I mean, like people have babies and go on to have a second baby. So like why withhold something that can be so valuable If I had known about what to expect in the postpartum period, I could have avoided suffering with postpartum depression for like four months because Mm -hmm. I might have known the different ways that it could look. We only hear in the media of postpartum depression as like the most extreme version. So if you have anything that falls short of that and you've never had a baby before to compare it to, you're not sure. You're like, well, maybe this is just what it's supposed to be. Oh, yeah. I mean, I honestly feel like there should be a therapist right there. like your next day in the hospital. I mean, why is there not? Because it is, It can, I think a lot of times it can be very traumatic. Yeah. Labor too. I found labor very traumatic. Yeah. And even if you're going through postpartum, even if you know about it, which I did, the anxiety and everything kind of gets in the way of doing anything about it or understanding it. So, yeah. But yeah, we have this idea of throughout history 
this all would be handed down from women to women, generation to generation. I think it's getting better now, but I mean, in the Victorian era, that wasn't the case at all. Right. I just want to go back to what you said, Elena, in terms of the doctors making all these decisions in the terms of good business. And that is exactly what it boiled down to when midwives basically got sidelined. It was because doctors wanted the business. They wanted the money that would come from that. I know. And it's amazing how like this stigma on midwives and doulas has remained to this day. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's just like hippie extra or whatever. Right. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So speaking of midwifery and everything, when we were talking about what to read for this episode, you had suggested a classic from the 70s, For Her Own Good by Barbara Ehrenreich, who just passed away last month, incidentally, and Deidre English. It's a history of how women have been mistreated and misdiagnosed by the healthcare system. It also talks about what we were discussing regarding men being the experts in medicine and psychology and causing that dividing line to happen between their clear-headed, supposedly masculine thinking and this female midwifery, old wives' tales, female superstition, that sort of thing. They even have a chapter called Motherhood as Pathology, and that looks at the expectations of childbearing and how it basically changed midstream across America, right? Elena, do you want to tell our listeners what happened with that? Sure. Yeah. So they they kind of applied this like scientific strategy to how they were teaching women to raise their children. So like they were making child rearing more scientific and like that was kind of a way to inadvertently have women apply themselves fully to how they raised their children. So kind of like um, replacing the career that might be tempting them out of the house and putting them back into the house. Like child rearing is a full-time job. And these are all of the ways that you should be fully entrenched in that role. The woman's job was to create this like plush, comfortable, pleasant setting inside the house for their husband and for their children. And they were supposed to kind of devote all of their energy to that. It was just kind of a way to take back power in a way. Um, and then like they add, you know, added words to it to make it sound um, you know, like house engineering or like, you know, to <laughs> domestic kind of like, science. Yeah, yes, exactly. I'm not ironing. I'm engineering <laughs> right. a way to flatten this shirt. <laughs> I'm an efficiency expert yeah, exactly. <laughs> making our home more efficient. Uh. Um, okay. So this all is interesting too, because I think it came out like a month or a month and a half ago in the New York times, there was an op-ed by a journalist named Chelsea Conaboy. Uh, Kim, I think I sent it to you, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, I read it to you. Yeah. It's titled maternal instinct is a myth that man created. So in it, she talks about this notion that maternal instinct isn't instinctive at all. Society has led us to believe that it's built in biologically to women. But as Conaboy writes, it was constructed over decades by men selling an image of what a mother should be diverting our attention from what she actually is and calling it science. So exactly what we were talking about. When I was becoming pregnant or like when I was even thinking of, should I have a child? I was waiting for this whole like maternal clock to kick in that everyone was talking about and waiting for like this maternal instinct to take over. And it never actually happened until I had to like make this kind of rational decision of like, do I want children? What are the pros and cons? They make it feel like if you don't have that instinct that you're somehow less of a woman um, or like less of a mother. And really like that was like another way to just kind of underpin women as not being rational or not having reason. And these decisions are actually just built into their biology. And then so back to literature, 
you know, we were talking about this, uh, the short, like the famous short story, The Yellow Wallpaper, which was based off of the author's real experience. So Charlotte Perkins Gilman felt that whenever she was home with her husband and baby, that she felt insane. Um, And then when she was away, because she was like an activist and a writer, she felt so much better. But when she was trying to get treatment for it or talking to doctors about it, they said that actually she just needed to spend more time at home. And that was the problem they were treating her for like that famous hysteria that we mentioned and nervousness. Um, And so like the treatment for that was total isolation, under stimulation. She had to eat bland food, you know, be in a room all by herself, no socializing, no writing. And in the story, this woman just becomes kind of obsessed with the wallpaper on her wall because that's all that she's seeing. And she gets further and further into her psychosis. And this was all based on her actual experience. Um, And so in a way, when I was thinking about my character, Peggy, I thought that there was kind of a parallel there on a lower extreme. So like she, you know, had been piloting and fulfilling her dream. And then she was yanked away from that. So that was kind of like her isolation, her understimulation in more of a practical way. And then like she would have the same, you know, tendency to want to free her daughter from that prison in the same way that that character wanted to free the woman in the wallpaper that she, you know, was deluded, like that she was imagining. Oh my God, that's great. I didn't think of that, but you're right. I think everybody probably listening has read the yellow wallpaper because we're all English nerds in this group. But if you have not, it's pretty short. Definitely recommend you check it out. It's completely groundbreaking for its time to have been writing about postpartum depression, basically. Um, I read too that Charlotte Perkins Gilman sent a copy of it to the doctor that had prescribed her this prison-like bed rest. She didn't hear back from them. But I love that she's like, FYI, I just want you to read this right now. Yeah. If only she knew that that story would sustain through the centuries. And sadly, that still resonates today. Women are still put on bed rest during their pregnancy and studies are questioning whether it actually is beneficial at all. Yeah. And just that idea that you're supposed to suddenly have a baby and now you're going to enjoy it. You're going to just enjoy being home all the time. You're going to want to just take care of your baby all the time. And that that other part of you is just, you'll be fine. It'll go away. I mean, I think there's still some feeling of that. It's supposed to sort of encompass everything. And if it doesn't, there's something wrong. You should be completely fulfilled by these new duties because it is your biological imperative. Yep. Yeah. And so like, then you feel like you can't be a good mother because you're not allowed to be other things. So like, you're just like kind of stripped of, you know, everything that once satisfied you. Yeah. 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 And Peggy in your book is trying to go to like potluck uh, community gatherings and stuff. And and yeah. And it seems so banal to her, given the fact that she was flying. Yeah. And she tells her husband, it's like, I'm trying, but no, it doesn't feel the same. Yes. Yeah. 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 So um, I can also think of some other books that we've covered on the podcast that touch on this theme. Um, There's Daddy's Gone a Hunting, The Homemaker, Girl of the Limberlost, I'll come to mind. I'm sure there's many more. And then we also had Rachel Verona Coates on, and she has a book called Too Much, How Victorian Constraints Still Bind Women Today. That's really great and touches on some of these subjects as well. As a more contemporary book, um, I recently read a book called Bandaged Little Days, That was about a woman who moves with her family overseas and has two young children. And it's like her slow degrade into psychosis also. 
um, just from being so completely cut off from all ties and um, her husband's really busy with his job and how she just kind of devolves into mental illness. And that was really well done too. Also, you know, this broader topic of how women are treated by the medical establishment. I mean, we're still talking about it today with everything that's going on with reproductive health. And I remember in the episode that we did with Amy Sohn about Ida Craddock um, a year or two ago, whenever that was, she told us that up until like the mid 1800s, abortion was a normal sanctioned medical procedure that nobody looked askance at. So I was in the last couple of days looking into that more. And I found this NPR story that kind of explained when and how and why the tide turned there. And it became suddenly like this moral forbidden thing. It was so fascinating. So we're going to link to that story in our show notes, but needless to say, one of the main reasons for this shift in attitude was racism. Um, A few select men in power deciding we need to stop the brownification of America and we need more white women to start having more white babies. I mean, we could go on and on about all of these topics. We've only just really scratched the surface on the subject matter. And, you know, there's the fact that in parts of the world, maternity care for women still remains completely non-existent, right? Even in our own country. I mean, I don't know what the number is, but I know that Black women have a higher rate of death from giving birth and postpartum than white yeah. women. So yeah. yeah, I think the United States has the highest maternity death rate of the developed world. Like there's I think that's right. so much, yeah, so much more that we could do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then slightly off topic, but I did see a news article a few weeks ago about an experience in India where they are hooking men up to devices to simulate menstrual cramps to see how long men could stomach it quote unquote. I remember saying that they didn't do too well with it though, right? I think that's great though. Because yeah, yeah, like like the more that we get comfortable discussing female issues in the larger population, yeah. the better it'll be. There has just been this pressure to not speak these kinds of things out loud. You know, like if you go like buy tampons, you have to like whisper it to the cashier or be embarrassed or something, or like men can't go get it, which is so silly. Um, yeah. I've just been making my husband listen to the word perimenopause for like the last six months. <laughs> and now he uses it too. He's like, you know, like, I think it's I have, just hormones. We mentioned, uh, <laughs> speaking of words, like we mentioned that we both have three-year-olds. Uh-huh. Um, and from the beginning, I've just been calling, you know, his part a penis. But like when he, you know, asks about me, like, where's your penis? I noticed that I have the instinct to not speak my part as freely. And I have no idea where that comes from. And I like, and the fact that it's like I shouldn't even say vagina, like that's incorrect. Like it is, it should be vulva. But like, so like there's there's first like the inaccuracy, right? And then there's the shame. Yeah, because like, even vulva sound like I'd rather say vagina somehow. Right. But where's that coming from? Yeah, right. that's so interesting. Yeah. Uh, One thing I regret. <laughs> yeah, I, I regret when my daughter was a toddler. You know how they always follow you into the bathroom. Mm-hmm. I regret that I would kick her out of the bathroom when I was on my period because I didn't Mm -hmm. want her to be scared or freaked out. I do that for the same reason. And as she got to be older and I had to explain it all to her, I realized if she had just grown up seeing that and knowing what it was and me not freaking out about it, it would be totally normal to her, you know, because as a kid, you're not faced by stuff. Yeah. 
I just tell my daughter that I have to wear something because I pee a little extra during this certain time of month. But why? Why not just say it? This goes back to what we were talking about. And that You're absolutely women, right. women have a responsibility to pass it on to right. your daughters. What's going on? Yeah, you're right. Anyway, anyway so th- this has been <laughs> such a good discussion. But I, I want to yeah. go back to Eyes Turn Skyward yeah. really yes. quickly because I really want to recommend it to people. It reminds me especially all of Peggy's backstory, um, a league of their own meets the right stuff, mm-hmm. you know, where you see them, this indoctrination and them learning and, and the camaraderie they have. Yeah. 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 Uh, it is so good. I can really see this being turned into a movie. Me too. Oh, Me too. Awesome. Or a mini series. That'd be amazing. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. It's a quick, fun read and, um, and it will, it'll make you think as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. So thank you so much, Elena, for being on the show and discussing all these topics with thank us. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. So that's all for today's episode. Tune in next week when we'll be discussing a lost lady who wrote a spooky gothic tale that's perfect to read this Halloween. Ooh, something wicked this way comes. Yay, I'm excited. Bye, everyone. Our theme song was written and performed by Jenny Malone, and our logo was designed by Harriet Grant. Lost Ladies of Lit is produced by Amy Helms and Kim Askew.